Welcome to the show. Here's my dad. You're listening to the Infant Adoption Guide podcast. On the show today, we have Rachel Garlinghouse back to talk about transracial adoption and answer questions from the Facebook support groups. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Infant Adoption Guide podcast. My name is Tim Elder. This is the podcast all about domestic infant adoption. Thank you so much for joining me today. This is the show uh, that will help you shorten the time, decrease the cost, and make it less stressful for you on your adoption journey. Hopefully give you some inspiration, some hope to reach that dream of becoming parents through adoption. And I'm so excited you're here with me. Today is all about transracial adoption. You know, we, it's a, such a huge topic to cover. And back in episode 31, we had Rachel Garlinghouse on the show. She shared her story. She did she did an amazing job answering questions, and we talked about transracial adoption, but really only scratched the surface. We wanted to talk about a lot more. So I brought her back on. She's a mom. She's a blogger. She's a gifted writer. She wrote a lot of books. We'll talk about that in the interview. She's just so passionate about transracial adoption. She'll open your eyes at what it's like to adopt a child from a different race and how to handle what's what goes on in everyday family life so i wanted to bring her back on she graciously agreed so i hope you really enjoy the interview let's get into it now hey everyone i am so excited to have rachel garlinghouse back on the show today she is a gifted writer a blogger hopefully you already know about her through her her blog and her writings uh, but most importantly she is a mom of three to uh, through transracial open adoption and she, in her own words, is crazy passionate about transracial adoption. And she's wrote many books, including Come Rain or Come Shine, A White Parent's Guide to Adopting and Parenting Black Children. She wrote Black Girls Can, An Empowering Story of Yesterdays and Todays. She wrote, uh, well, that came out this year, earlier this year, uh, a journal called Encouragement for the Adoption and Parenting Journey that she co-wrote with Madeline Melcher. Awesome book. Recommend that. And she just released her fourth book called Homeschooling Your Young Black Child, a simple gets getting started guide and workbook. I mean, she's written for so many big names, it's hard to, uh, to capture everybody here, but I'll just go through a few of them. The Essence Magazine, ABCNews.com, Huffington Post, Adoptive Families Magazine, of course, the, and the biggest one, of course, is right here on the Infant Adoption Guide blog where she wrote a great uh, guest post called Five Things to Consider Before Adopting Transracially. And you can learn more about her. Follow her blog. I highly recommend it. WhiteSugarBrownSugar.com. Very easy to remember and very catchy. So, Rachel, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me back, Tim. Absolutely. So great to have you back on the show. Back on episode 31, you shared your story. And we got started talking about transracial adoption. But there's just so much to talk about. At the end of that show, I just thought, well, we could just cover hours more here. So thank you for coming back on to talk with us uh, more about this. And and you had a great idea about reaching out to our Facebook friends through our s- Facebook support groups. And there's several of them out there. And so I think this is really an extra special show because there's so there's thousands of families out there on these support groups and transracial jobs is such a big topic. And I really, really wanted to cover it from adoptive parents point of view. And you're the perfect person to do that. So we reached out to all these Facebook groups. And one of them, especially, I'm an admin on there, so I kind of went a little more into detail about what we're doing. 
and there's like 2,300 families right now on that. So I said, hey, we're going to have Rachel on the show, and they know you. Have her answer some questions about transracial adoption. So he came up with several, quite a few questions. We'll cover them all today. Hopefully we'll get through them all. Uh, but I think the responses really show that we need to keep talking about transracial adoption and providing support for each other. So thank you for coming on. Yeah, I'm excited about today. And by the way, um, if you're interested in, we're talking about these adoption support groups. If you're listening to this and you are not on any of these groups, we'll put all the links in the show notes, infiniteadoptionguide.com slash 37. So if you want to get any of these groups, I recommend doing that. We'll p provide the links for you. Okay, uh, Rachel, are you ready to answer these questions? No pressure here. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm, I'm excited. Let's right. get at it. Great, great. All right, here's the first one. This comes from Kimberly. She says, awesome, I have Rachel's book, and I would love to know how you strike the balance between being culturally sensitive and aware, and how do you do this without in incidentally, promo incidentally promoting stereotypes while talking to your child? Yeah, absolutely. I work really hard to teach my kids that stereotypes toward any group of people only seeks to destroy and to limit those individuals within that group. And stereotypes don't define us. Um, so we talk about how people of color who are um, anything but stereotypes. So there's people like, and we pulled a lot of examples. So Darius Rucker um, is a former member of Hootie and the Blowfish, and now he's a solo artist in the country music industry. So he's one of two current black male country music artists. Um, and then I look at people like Venus and Serena Williams, who are in, um, of course, tennis, which is predominantly a white sport, typically. Um, and then people like even the president of his family or Misty Copeland, who um, is a very famous ballerina or Lecrae, who is a Christian um, rap artist and an African-American man. So I point to these individuals to talk to my kids that there are plenty of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, individuals who took their gifts and educations and experiences, and they're using that to break down barriers and barge through stereotypes. And I want my kids to know also that God designed them to be incredible human beings with unique talents and personalities and gifts. And so I'm going to support them as they figure out, you know, who they want to be and who they were made to be and live this extraordinary life, if no matter what limits other people try to place on them. So we work really hard on just, you know, making sure that the kids feel free to be who they are, not fit into a certain box because people of their same race or people of other races tell them they should be or live a certain way. Very nice. Very nice. Good stuff there. Yeah, I a lot to, to pull out of that, so I hope that helps Kimberly and anybody else dealing with that kind of a, of a question. Very, very good. Let's go to, let's see, well, Cassie and Sandra here both have asked similar questions, and Stacy she made some comments that are around the same thing, so I'm going to read these. And there's a couple questions in here, so stop me if you want to answer these um, before we get all the way through them. Okay, they asked, how do you process or respond to comments from folks about your adopted children without being overly sensitive or protective, like dealing with staring or dumb questions, especially in public? And can you even do any of this with humor? They say they, they assume that we, the, we should assume the best in others is what, what they're both saying. But how do you find that balance of assuming that others mean well and at the same time not struggling to deal with them? 
Yeah, absolutely. Does that, does that make sense? <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, I see what you're saying. Like we're trying to figure out in that moment how to respond and how exactly. do we do it where we're not, uh, yeah, giving up too much information. Uh, no, I see what you're saying. Absolutely. Um, and I think they had asked too, right, about how do we deal with not being on the defensive all the time, right? Yes, like that's right. Always having a chip on our shoulder. So <clears throat> I consider myself to have a fairly thick skin. I'm a writer, so I get a lot of feedback. That's not always, <laughs> you know, positive or, you know, very complimentary. And then, of course, we get some positive feedback too. But um, I have a thick skin, but I'm also a mama bear when it comes to my children. I think most parents, you know, moms or dads are. So if someone crosses the line between being respectfully curious to intrusive, I don't have a problem standing up for my kids. Um, an example would be, um, we were asked what country our kids are from. To me, that's not really offensive. Like a lot of people do assume that children of color um, were internationally adopted. And mm. so I'm able to let them know that not all children who um, were adopted transracially are from other countries. And I also take the opportunity to tell them that there's over 120 thousand kids in foster care right now waiting to be adopted, some of whom are children of color, some aren't. But it's sort of my way of giving them general information without giving away, you know, any of my kids' personal information. Hmm. But then there's the questions that are too personal, which I'm sure you faced at times too, Tim. <laughs> yes, but it's yes. like someone asking, um, why was your child put up for adoption or um, things like that? And so I I try to respond with positive adoption language and say something general, like children are placed for adoption for many reasons, instead of saying my kids were placed for adoption because, mm. but there are people who even go farther and cross the line. So a lot of people ask us, we get this question a lot. Are the kids real siblings? And I do find that question offensive um, because the stranger has chosen to put his or her personal interests above the well-being of the kids standing right next to me. Mm. And also because it's just simply rude. So I, I kind of um, have the analogy of like, I wouldn't go up to someone in a wheelchair and say, well, why are you in a wheelchair? Were you in an accident? Was the accident your fault? Are you able to walk? I bet you love, love parking closer to stores. Like it's oh. that offensive wow. really when people come up and interrogate you and grill you, especially right in front of your kids. Um, so obviously that's not okay right to do that to someone who perhaps utilizes a wheelchair but this is kind of what stranger adults do to kids who are adopted transracially so when that happens i say things like that's private or i've even said to someone that's none of your business when they refuse to <laughs> not stop um or i've even walked away mid-conversation from people who don't take the hint that they're being really rude and my opinion is really it doesn't matter what the person's intent was you know whether they were curious or intrusive all that really matters is what comes out of their mouth and how that makes my kids feel. And so when transracial parents by, you know, by adoption, they need to know that it's okay not to respond to someone who's being inappropriate. And when you stand up for your kids when they're young, we model for our children that it is okay for them to have some personal space and some personal boundaries. So as they get older, they learn that it is okay to say, you know, hey, that's none of your business or change the subject. Um, so as kids get older, the resource that I recommend is there's something called the Wise Up Power Book, and it's sold by the Center for Adoption Support and Education, and it talks to kids about um, WISE is an acronym for the ways that kids can respond to adoption questions, particularly when their parents aren't around. So it's a great resource. But basically, my philosophy is I don't give out my kids stories like a grandma gives out cookies. I'm just not willing to do it. And so I think there's a way to be um, filled with grace and to respond to people, but to respect our kids' privacy. Yeah, very good. And and 
part of that, in the middle of that question, they asked, can you do it with humor? Is there ever a time that you can do it with humor? <laughs> or do you, I mean, sometimes you may just want to strangle somebody. So it's hard to, <laughs> right, hard to right. do anything with humor when you have that kind of a thought in your head. But is there ever a time you've had to, you've been able to deal with it with humor? I'm, I'm not always the quickest thinker in those situations, mainly because if I'm with my three young children at Target, like, my son is, I just wrote a piece about this, ripping open a box of tampons and throwing them around. And my daughter is like grabbing all the candy bars, like thinking I'm not looking. And so I'm, I don't consider myself an incredibly funny person. Um, and I also try to respond in the ways that are, are comfortable for my kids and their personalities. So usually for me, I found the best thing is just to kind of nip it at the beginning, the conversation versus letting it go on and on. Um, and also because I just know my oldest child tends to get embarrassed when people grill us. So I think the humor part would probably more embarrass her than if I just stopped the conversation. But I think that some families always respond with humor. Like, oh my gosh, my kids are adopted. Thank you for telling me. I didn't realize it. Or, you know, just funny things like that that people can do. But I think it all comes down to what's okay, you know, what your kids think is an acceptable response just because you're a funny person, it doesn't mean that being funny is going to be, you know, appropriate for your children. So I think there's a, you know, there's room for sarcasm and humor and bluntness and everything. You just have to determine what's best for your family. Yeah. I kind of see what your kid's reaction is too, especially as they get a little bit older and you can talk to them about it outside of that conversation. Like, how did you feel about that conversation? And then you'll get a better idea, I think, of how they, they process, um, that conversation and what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, um, absolutely. And and Stacy commented on this on the Facebook group that uh, she has never had anybody ask if her children were adopted or had anything rude to her. And she says maybe that depends on the racial diversity of where she lives. Can you comment on that? What, what do you think about that? I think it's true. We don't get as many comments or questions where we live. Um, we live in a university town and there are a lot of interracial families and there are a whole lot of adoptive families. So I think that it's sort of normal to see a family like mine. And also because I write so much, I get people coming up to me in the community and saying, Hey, I saw you on Yahoo news this morning or, you know, whatever. <laughs> so I think people read my articles and know it's me just because we've lived here for a while. But, um, when we're traveling, we definitely get more comments and questions depending on where we are in the country. And then sometimes, I mean, the truth is there's just rude people everywhere or people who are willing to, you know, come up and offer a comment. So it sometimes is geographically related, but sometimes not. I mean, you could just run into someone anywhere and they're going to they're going to say something. And I should note, too, that I don't have the same responses when children ask us questions. Um, there was a little boy at the park. Um, I think he was Hispanic. And then he came up to me and looked at my kids and looked at me and he goes, how can you be their mom? Mom. And he was like, you better give me an answer, lady. And I think he was like five or six. And so I just said to him, his parent wasn't around, you know, and I'm kind of like, uh, okay, I guess I'm going to give this little boy a talk. So I just said, you know, um, that, you know, families come in all different shades and I'm, you know, a pink shade and my kids are a brown shade, but I am their mom. And he accepted it and went on to play with my kids. So, you know, with, with kids, I tend to be much more grace filled, but again, without giving away, you know, parts of my kids' stories. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up because, yeah, kids can be, they have a little more leeway of being yeah. <laughs> up front and um, curious. And I, I just can't imagine some, why some of these people that um, walk up to you in a grocery store uh, could be so bold to 
ask you questions. I mean, I don't think I would do that to anybody. Uh, the, I know. Like any stranger. So <laughs> I think it comes down to manners. I was raised in a home where you yeah. you just didn't do that. And it's not that later my mom wouldn't say, hey, I noticed that you were, you know, looking at that person in a wheelchair who was missing a leg. Do you want to talk about it? It was like we could have those conversations, but they weren't going to be done in front of the individual. Not at so, all. So, Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully we, we covered that. That's a big subject. So I'm, yes. <laughs> hopefully there's uh, if there are more comments about it, I, please ask them on the on the support groups because we'll we'll dive onto there and uh, see if we can get those answered for you. Um, let's see. Lori and Ray ask similar questions as well. They say, uh, what do you do to ensure your children are exposed to or or interact with people of their race? How do you keep your children connected with their heritage and what traditions do you follow? Those are all kind of similar questions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's a great question and one that should be asked hopefully before people choose transracial adoption <laughs> so that they kind of have a plan in place. Yep. But um, I think the number one thing that needs to happen that isn't really talked about much in adoption training is that the parent themselves you know, needs to have a group of friends that include people of color because, and I'm talking about if we're talking about a white parent, because, you know, your quote, one black friend isn't enough. You know, if you never have a person of color in your home for dinner, or you never, you know, spend the weekend with, you know, friends of color, I wonder what message that sends to our kids. So, I mean, many friends of color. And I, the importance too of diversity is not just having friends of different races, but friends of different ages and abilities, those things are all important. But I think having friends who racially match our kids sends a message to our children that one, you know, they're, it's important for us to have these relationships, but two, that friend or friends can be invaluable resource for you because they've been through things that your child's going to struggle with. So you can pick their brains and listen to their experiences and take advice from them. And then you'll be a better parent to your child. So the first thing for sure is to have a diverse group of friends. I think there's no substitute for that. And then second, one of the best things that we've done is um, we have a mentor for our girls. Um, and we haven't yet for our son because he's still a toddler. But when my girls were four and two, we contacted the local university um, where I used to teach. And I asked them to help connect me with specifically a black female Christian college student who might be interested in mentoring my girls. We interviewed eight women who were interested in such a position. Wow. Um, and so we chose one and it is the best decision we ever made. So we're three years out down the road and our girls mentor isn't just mentoring the girls, but us. She's a good friend of mine. She stayed the night at our house last weekend. We've met her family. We've met her boyfriend. Um, we've, you know, we've just developed this extraordinary relationship with this young woman who three years ago, I didn't even know, you know, existed. I didn't know her personally. And then my girls can talk to her about things, um, hair or skin, or if they have even a, a question about somebody at school who's, you know, being a bully, she's just this phenomenal, um, go-to strong black woman that I want for my girls, you know, mm -hmm. to see. And then third, um, we, elected to place our oldest daughter in public school because public school in our area is far more diverse than private school. Private school has maybe one child of color in each school. So, so um, and last year, my oldest was very fortunate. Um, her teacher was African-American and her principal is also African-American. So those are things very important. My daughter, she wants to see people who are quote brown like her. That is, you know, the words that she uses. Mm -hmm. It's really important to her. So that's been good. 
And then finally, we enroll our kids in YMCA classes because our YMCA is very, very diverse. So this is good because it gives us the opportunity to make more friends and my children to have the opportunity to make more friends. But there's other options, of course. There's, you know, you can attend a more diverse church. You can live in a more diverse neighborhood, extracurricular activities, camps. There's just numerous ways to really connect your child with their with their racial community but I think it all starts with you have to live in a sort of diverse area because if you don't there's not going to be those connections the likelihood of you driving you know an hour to take your kids to a ballet class just because there's two other kids in the class who um, share her race is probably unlikely for a busy family so it a lot of times adoptive families have to consider if a move is appropriate or not for their family, which I know a lot of people don't like to hear or listen to. Um, it's kind of, cause that's a big change, but it might be something that's necessary in the long run. Okay. And how about, uh, connecting them? The part the other part of that question was kind of connecting with their heritage or traditions. Yeah, absolutely. What, what would you There's, recommend? Yeah, there's a lot of options. Um, there's things like we we live just outside St. Louis, so there's a lot of restaurants, for example. Um, you guys, maybe people have seen the Oprah Network does um, a show on Sweetie Pies, which is a soul food restaurant here in St. Louis. So it's really, really exciting to take the kids to Sweetie Pies, and sometimes the film crews are there, and you can meet the lady who owns the restaurant. And so that's just a really cool experience for us. And then there's cultural festivals. This weekend, there's um, an intercultural festival right here in St. Louis that we're going to attend with our kids. And there's holidays maybe specific to your kids' heritage that you want to celebrate. Traveling is a big thing. You can see things like monuments and museums to talk to your kids and connect them to their heritage. And then in our house, because I'm a former English teacher, you should see the books we have, Tim. Oh, my God. <laughs> like if our, I need to take that a video of that just for the insurance company in case anything ever happens because we have... <laughs> ridiculous amount of books, but they're seeing movies. But again, it's the same thing. I think ultimately you just need to have relationships with people who share your children, your child's race, heritage, culture. And then also there's a lot of culture camps across the country that are specific for transracial adoptees. So that's another option. But I think one, just showing your children that it's important, you know, you have action figures in your house and dolls in your house and artwork in your house and all the those things that say, hey, we value your heritage, your culture, and your race. So we've worked really hard to do that. Very, very good. Yeah, a lot of good stuff there. Let's see. Andrew asked, how are you teaching your child about racism? And what do you do when they get bullied for being different? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my... One thing that I do is I teach my kids about their racial history. Um, and I do that through a lot of books and through everything that I talked about in the um, homeschooling your young black child book. So I outlined it all in there, um, what we've done so far. But honestly, my kids know more about their racial history than some of my college students did because we do focus on it and talk about it. My kids talk, you know, we talk about civil rights and slavery and trailblazers from yesterday and trailblazers today. When Brie Newsome took the flag, the Confederate flag down, she scaled the pole and pulled the flag down. I'm like in tears watching it. And I put the video on for my kids and we had this whole discussion about, you know, what is Brie doing and why are we bringing the flag down and why that's important. So I think by giving them sort of a background and a, a base knowledge that empowers them in some ways to know why, you know, we've, fight against injustices and stuff. But I would say there have been things that have happened to my kids. Um, my toddler son was called a thug 
um, a quote cute little thug, and I oh, thought boy. he's two years old, and you're calling him a thug. And some um, black authors have equated the word thug with like the modern N word. Hmm. So you know, it's like it's supposed to be, I guess, endearing in some way that he's a thug. But I just don't find that cute. So mm-hmm. he, I mean, he's two years old. And he's already been called that. And my girls were riding bike in the driveway one day and this was in the spring and a white man drove past our house leaned out his truck window and yelled the n-word at the girls twice and it was the most heartbreaking moment i think of my life just Mm. listening to that so and then the kids face microaggressions like people trying to pet their hair um or people saying that they are good dancers because it's quote in them as as black people you know they're good dancers because of that so these are forms of bullying they have not been bullied um only my oldest is in public school but has not been bullied at school because of her race but again i think because of where we live in the you know there's a lot of adoptive families and things like that it hasn't really happened but we teach our kids that it's okay to have a reaction whether you're embarrassed or sad or angry um but we also teach them that you have to turn these into some sort of justice or action that demands justice and to stand up for yourself so when the guy drove past our driveway and yelled that word at the kids we called the police we filed a report and we were able to identify the person who did it um through a long series of actions um so that was a way to show my kids that what happened to them was not appropriate and that we were going to respond to what happened um, or like when people try to touch the girl's hair, the girls have learned very early on to tell adults, don't touch my hair. I don't like it. And that's just a way of them standing up for themselves and their bodies. So I think one of the things that the other thing we do to empower the kids is we just fill our home with affirming books about kids of color. And, and um, we speak affirmations to our kids, things like, you know, we love them. We love their personalities, their characteristics. We love their physical appearance. You know, we'll say, you know, you have such beautiful dark brown skin or things like that. And then we teach them that, yeah, the world can be really cruel and unfair, especially, you know, it does happen, I think, more toward people of color. But their ultimate value comes from the fact that they're children of God and they're going to have an extraordinary life and we're going to be here to support them. And as each, you know, issue of racism or race arises, because we have friends of color, we can go to them and say, hey, can you tell us how to respond in this situation or, you know, give us our experiences? Because obviously as two white parents, we haven't necessarily experienced the, the things that our children, you know, are going to go through. So again, just having that that base group of diverse friends, it really, really helps transracial adoptive parents in situations of racism. Yeah, I can see that it would be very helpful for you to get insight that you can possibly get through your own experience uh just having those friends and and especially the mentor for your your girls that's awesome that is i mean that's a brilliant idea i think to to have somebody like that that can directly talk to them and interact with them and and you pick them and you're friends with them and uh, i think that's just amazing yeah she's i mean i just can't say enough great things about her. She's phenomenal <laughs> and she just loves the kids and she's really taken my son under her wing too, even though technically I guess she's not mentoring him, but he just adores her. Oh my goodness. She walks in the door and he's like, no one else exists <laughs> in the world, but her. So it's, yeah, it's been a, a, an incredible blessing to our family to have her in our lives. Awesome. Very good. It kind of leads into this next question, although it's a little bit different. Lori and a couple others have asked about 
if you have any adult adoptees that you've asked for advice on, ra- on raising your children, I don't know if it's just raising your children. I guess it could be dealing with uh, transracial issues with your children too. But do you have any adult adoptees that you've been able to talk with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think her question is definitely one that's important and probably, again, not talked enough about before the adoptions happen. Um, but I think that parenting my kids has been a culmination of experiences and voices, including those of adult adoptees. I mean, you know, Tim, I'm very good friends with Madeline Melcher, who's an adult adoptee. Um, and I've gone to her a lot and said, oh my gosh, I'm worried about this or we're struggling with this and what do I do? So having her in our lives has been has been very beneficial and she's such a wise individual. Um, my grandparents are not my biological grandparents. And I think that this was the beginning of my realization of the importance of having um wisdom and listening to the struggles and challenges that adoptees might face. Um, so after I, you know, grew up and got married and started working and we built our family by adoption, we started broadening our group of friends. And one of them, um, is a friend who right after my oldest daughter was born or before actually, she's a transracial adoptee, um, and a birth mother. And she and I became very close and talked a lot about what her parents did right, what her parents didn't do right, um, things that maybe I need to think about as a transracial adoptive parent. And then um, most recently, when our mentor went home for eight months um, to save some money to come back to go to nursing school, we had an interim mentor who is an adult adoptee. So that was a really cool part of her story that she shared with me. And we talked a lot about that and what that meant. So I, I'm a Christian. I feel like God put these individuals in my path for a reason to learn from and to grow from. Um, so being able to go to these individuals and say, Hey, we're struggling with this. What do you think about it? And getting responses from them has been great. But I think that, you know, adoptive parents, when you adopt transracially, particularly it's important to have friends of color, whether that person is adopted or not, because not only are we talking about adoption issues, we're going to be talking about race issues. So I think that adoptive parent, we just have to be really proactive and brought in our circle of friends and not be afraid to go to someone and say, you know, Hey, I really need your help or your advice, which is not necessarily, um, favored. I don't think in our culture anymore, we're very independent and we can do anything on our own. But the truth is the more people we have in our circle of friends, the better parents we can be. Yeah, absolutely. Man, you've been lucky. Well, not, not just lucky. You, you've, you've made your own or you're wise enough to go and seek out people like this so I won't, I won't say it's lucky to have these people in your life because you've you've made the effort to bring them into your life so kudos to you for doing that that's that's be huge for you and your children uh, one thing i wanted to mention on that adoptee take is uh i recently read an article from an adoptee his name is todd vanderwerf and i'll put the link in the show notes but he wrote an article called Genes Aren't Destiny and Other Things I've Learned About Being Adopted. And he talked about transracial adoption in, in his article. And he says, we like to believe that love can conquer all. And that's often true. But in this case, love can't conquer the fact that people are sometimes jerks. No matter how, <laughs> no matter how much parents in transracial adoptions might hope otherwise. And it kind of goes back to our original, that first question we had about just people being jerky and saying stupid things. Uh, but I just wanted to get your comment on that, on that quote. What you, what do you think about that? I completely agree with him. I've written hundreds 
hundreds of articles, and <laughs> I often write in the article, quote, love doesn't conquer all. It's a very lofty idea, I guess. Um, and I think love is the foundation of adoption, but it doesn't eliminate adoption issues um, that the birth parents might have, that the um, parents by adoption might have, that the adoptee might have. Love doesn't eradicate those issues but um love and also love won't stop outsiders from making intrusive <laughs> rude evaluations and um, uh, assumptions about your family you know there's just there's certain things that love can't cover um but love is so necessary um there's so much seeking i think to tear the adoption triad down um there's jealousies and anger and fear and doubt and insecurities and trauma there's just so much out there not to mention adoption is still seen as second best to having biological children. Um, so because of these issues and the idea that love doesn't conquer all, but it is very important. That's why Madeline and I wrote the book that we co-authored together, the encouragement for the adoption and parenting journey, because love is essential. And if you don't have it, nothing else is going to stand, you know, anger and all these things that are, are kind of thrust upon families by adoption and birth parents and adoptees, these, you know, they're sustainable, I guess, but they can make for a pretty miserable life. And if I got upset every time somebody came to our family and made an inappropriate comment, I wouldn't be a very effective parent. So, I, I mean, I completely agree with him. Love doesn't con conquer all, but any actions that we have have to stem from love. Yeah, well said, well said. Yeah, and I don't think he's trying to uh, say that either, that, that, that love's not necessary. I think right. he, he's, I think he's, is along the same lines as you are as yeah it's you can't just rely on that sometimes you have to uh, do like you've done and really uh infuse some wisdom into getting people to help you uh deal with people being jerks and what to say to yes. them and, and how to <laughs> i like his phrasing though i think I it's very <laughs> he used a nicer word than i probably would have but yeah i think that i mean i totally yeah, yeah. i get what he's saying it can really wear on you the things that people say um yeah. and trying to discount your experiences or uh, yeah it's it's not easy for sure but i think there's there's practical steps that parents can take yeah and it made, made me think of one thing too that i'm sure people deal with I, thankfully we don't and hopefully you don't but there may be people in inside of your family uh whether it be your siblings your parents your grandparents or even an extended family that may say stupid things and just and, and not trying to be jerks but just they're they're open and they know you so well they feel like they can say anything to you and it may they may say something in front of your kids um do you i mean obviously you're going to handle them a little bit differently than you are a stranger um, right. can you can <laughs> you talk about that what how would you or have you dealt with any of that well, I think there's, as you were talking, I was thinking about two books that came out around the time that we were starting our adoption journeys. I bought them for both of our sets of parents. And I said, listen, I'm not giving you an assignment, although I am a writing teacher, but I'm not giving you an assignment. But I'd like you to read these two books um, because I know that adoption can be difficult on grandparents, too. And, you know, we just kind of let them know one day, hey, we're adopting. And they're like, oh, OK. Um, and not really sure what to make of it. Um, so we gave them two books and one of them I really like is called N on it. Um, and there's an extended title. I can't remember the rest of it, but it's called N on it. And it's by Elizabeth and her um, name has an S in it, not a Z O'Toole. And then also um, Patricia Irwin Johnston wrote a great book called adoption is a family affair. And both of those 
books speak to relatives and the struggles that they may have with adoption. Ultimately, though, if a family member refuses to treat all kids equally, meaning if you have a biological child and then also a child you adopted, or they refuse to accept that you're doing foster care, or they refuse your transracially adopted child, and there, there's just a lot of inappropriate maybe behaviors that you've given them time to work out and they haven't, you have to cut the family member off and if and until they can resolve their issues. And I say that because when you choose to adopt a child or have a biological child, you choose to put that child in their well-being first. And there's no straddling the fence on it. If someone refuses to really treat your child as a person and treat your child appropriately, then they got to go. And hopefully it's not a long-term thing, but I think at some point parents have to decide you know, hey, I've given them ample opportunities and I gave them these fabulous books. And if they really refuse to have a heart change, that's a person who's not healthy to be around my child right now. Yeah, well said. Yep. Hopefully, I know it happens out there, but hopefully it doesn't happen often that you have to deal with family members like that. But uh, it is really about education. It's, it's trying to get them to informed about what what to say what not to say and if you want to talk about some things let's talk about them off, you know outside of the ears of the little ones as well right all right uh, there's a couple questions left here dan asked this uh, is kind of a this is a bigger question to answer maybe this might be harder to answer for you but he says are you encouraged or concerned with the current state of race in our country does the current state of affairs affect your parenting i mean that that's kind of a that's a, that's a big question <laughs> big question to answer i don't know if you want to maybe give some examples or how you want to answer that one yeah you know i after i saw dan's question i was like oh my goodness this is a big big thing to take in um but i'll start with we live 20 minutes from ferguson missouri and obviously last mm. year when um michael brown died it was earth shattering for our community, not because there weren't already racial tensions and issues in our community, but because a young man had died and he's black and he was killed by a white police officer. And that just, you know, it creates a lot of issues. And I think racial tensions rose to an all time high and still are. I think that it affects how people treat my children. I think it affects how people see our family and then obviously how it affects um, how people see people of color and how we perceive police officers. So I'm very concerned. And Michael Brown and that shooting, you know, there were a lot of things that went on around that same time. You know, Tamir Rice, 12 year old boy, had died um, um, through um, police officers killing him. And just a lot of things happened that I can't breathe hashtag, Black Lives Matter hashtag, say her name hashtag when Sandra Bland died. It's just, there's a lot of things going on in our country right now. And parents who have children of color have to parent their kids differently in the way that we have to have extended conversations on what to do um, if you get stopped by a police officer that parents don't necessarily have to have with white children just because it's, you know, we're worried that if a racist police officer approaches our kids that we need them to be prepared because the ultimate goal is that they stay safe and alive and we just don't know. And it's hard for me. I have police officers in my family, but then I have children of color. And, you know, so I'm constantly thinking about these things. But, you know, and then, of course, the whole thing around the Confederate flag, that's really impacted our country. Um, and it's just hard for me, Tim. Like, I get on 
on social media and I'm like, there's these hashtags of, you know, Black Lives Matter and say her name that started with Sandra Bland. And then um, the young girl, the nine-year-old girl who was just in Ferguson two weeks ago and was just doing her homework in her bedroom and was shot and killed. Um, and they haven't found her killer yet. And it's just, there's so much violence. And so I read these things and then the Black Lives Matter and they say her name. And then I see kind of these online wars about, you know, some white people are posting, well, all lives matter. It's not just about black lives. And then saying the Confederate flag is heritage. It's not hate. And I just, I have a lot of mixed feelings around all this. Um, so I'm really having to, again, rely on our, our friends of color and say, you know, as each situation arises or as we're approaching our kids are getting older or school starting, I have to go to them and be like, I, I need your help. I don't, I don't know what to do in X situation or, you know, it's, it's just really tough right now with the racial climate in our country. And I think the worst thing is when, when individuals turn a blind eye to it and try to promote colorblindness. And frankly, I have never heard a person of color say anything about colorblindness because we know it doesn't exist, right. but you know, it's, it's just really, it's really what happened in Ferguson really, really bothered me. It just, and I don't know exactly what happened. None of us did, but just seeing Mike Brown's face again and again and again on our TV screen and seeing all the riots and protests um, in Ferguson and then just ongoing issues. It's, it's just really difficult for the St. Louis community, but I think it's not isolated. There's obviously issues happening all around the country. So I would say I'm just trying to take things one step at a time in situations one day at a time because thinking bigger than that causes immense anxiety <laughs> and confusion. And um, so I'm really just trying to take it day by day. Yeah, I mean, you can because you have to because it's a process. I mean, we're not uh, racial tensions don't just disappear overnight. You know, we have to continually think about them, work on them and learn how to love each other no matter what. And that's just it takes time and a lot of people like you can really help with that because uh, i think i mean you're living in a, in a transracial adoption uh a family really i guess forces you to to deal with it more than a lot of us so i'm glad you got a lot of people around you to help you yeah. um a couple more questions here let's see two more Marianne asks, what is the one thing you should have said or done for your child that you didn't? And maybe that's... <laughs> I uh... thought that was a really clever question. Yeah, it was good. Um, I turned it around and I asked myself, what is the one thing I shouldn't have said or done that I did? Because of course, I'm all about, you know, thinking about things that I should have done differently. But I think the thing that I didn't do, which a lot of parents by adoption don't, is that I wasn't strong enough at the beginning of our adoption journey or not our adoption but parenting journey so I would answer too many strangers questions because I didn't want to be perceived as rude or embarrassed mm -hmm. um and I shared things that I probably shouldn't have just little tidbits of my kids stories um and I was warned by other parents of adoption not to do this but in the heat of the moment I just all of a sudden felt like oh I have to answer their question I don't want them to think I'm rude or that you know, people already have a sort of a negative perception of transracial adoptive families, either that, or they think we're like superheroes, I guess, like, you know, we're just a normal family, but you know, so sometimes I would share too much. So I really wish I would have listened, um, and been more careful in my answers earlier on, because I've never regretted saying too little. I've always regretted sharing too much. Very, very good advice there. Yes. Cause in the heat of the moment you do get 
and and it it definitely depends on what people say to you and how they say it. Yes. <laughs> and it's so hard to be calm and uh, just try not to give away too much. Yeah, I think your your advice is very very wise. Just say as as little as possible, especially given your child's story. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and you and I, like both of us are very passionate people about adoption. So I try to make sure I don't cross that line between I'm passionate about adoption education. Here's some general information and then not crossing that line between sharing anything personal about my children, because, yeah. you know, of course it's their story and it's not mine to give away. And I really don't want to give it away. Um, but early on, I definitely did too much and I'm thankful now that live and learn. Right. And that I don't really do that anymore. So yeah, that's good. And your kids are still fairly little, so they you've got a, a lot of more time left where of when they yeah. actually can remember things too. Yeah, I hope I get it right from here on out all the time, but I know I'm gonna mess up inevitably, but that's okay. Live and learn. That's right, that's right. Uh well there is one more question, but I wanna ask you first. Um on your blog, white sugar brown sugar dot com, you have a page called your My Adoption Philosophy. And on that page, you say, I do not believe in entering into transracial adoption lightly. However, I'm heartbroken at the lack of families willing to parent children of color. And I pray that my blog helps open hearts and minds. And I would probably extend that to say more than just your blog, but everywhere you talk about adoption and especially transracial adoption, including this show. So what do you hope families learn from listening to you today? I mean, there's a lot they can, they, they'll get, but what is, what's kind of the main topic or main focus that you want families to learn from you? I think from every single thing I write, I just think, you know, adoption, transracial adoption, even adoption in general and parenting by adoption, whether your kid is adopted transracially or not, they're not easy things to do, but they can be done ethically. They can be done wonderfully. If the parents have the resources, the support and the love. And I think that, you know, that's one thing that, that Madeline Melcher taught me the most is just really listening to my kids and what they need and tailoring my parenting and my responses and everything based on my individual kids, because there's a lot of adoption information out there. Most of it is fantastic. Some of it, I think leads parents terribly astray. Um, but it's just really listening to our kids and doing what they need in the moment. And Madeline has reminded me of that time and time and time again. And listening to that advice, I feel like parents can't go wrong if they really do and listen to what their kids need. Well said. Yes, very, very well said. Good stuff. All right, last question. And this I wanted to save, save for last because uh, it's – where Robin asks, which adult adoptee books, blogs, resources did you find the best to consult? And I, I want to expand that and just say what what other resources do you have? Not just adult adoptee books and resources, but what transracial adoption resources do you find the best to consult? Yeah, absolutely. I think I've read every adoption book on the market. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure, but I just can't get enough, including fiction books and kids books. I'm crazy. But anyway, um. So for adult adoptee bloggers, of course, I like Madeline Melchers because she's my friend. <laughs> Full disclosure here. But I really like, um, there's two Asian adoptees, transracial adoptees that I really like. And one of them is named Carissa Woodwick. And she co-wrote a book on how to do like a life book for your child. And she's 
also a therapist and her Facebook post him blow me out of the water. Mm. Like this woman is so wise. And if I get to meet her one day, she's going to think I'm nuts. I'm just going to run up and hug her and <laughs> gush all over her and tell her how wonderful she is. But anyway, her name's Carissa Woodwick and her last name is W O O D W Y K. And then I also really like Christina Romo. Um, I've read her, I believe her blog's name is the not so angry Asian adoptee, which right away I'm like, I love her because I mean her blog title, come on, please. So I love her. Um, but she wrote a great article for the Huff Post not too long ago. So I really like her. So I recommend them, but I also like reading, um, Michaela DePrince. So she is a very famous ballerina and a transracial adoptee. She wrote, um, a memoir about her life, about being an orphan, living in a war zone and being adopted and then becoming a star ballerina. And she's on Twitter. So I love just reading her, you know, updates and what's going on with her life. And then um, there's also a new book out um, about Korean twins who were adopted into different families and found each other through a YouTube video as adults. Crazy story. Wow. Um, and they just did a documentary and it's called Twinsters. So like sisters and twins combined, Twinsters. Um, so I really like all of these, um, individuals and what they have to say and share. And then my favorite transracial book, um, is in their own voices. And the subtitle is transracial adoptees tell their stories. And this is a culmination of chapter after chapter after chapter of transracial adoptees talking about basically what their parents and community did not do to support them. And I know that sounds very negative, I guess. And it is at times very hard to read, but, hands down the book that, you know, impacted me probably the most as far as transracial adoption. But there's other books too, like I'm Chocolate, Your Vanilla. Um, my friend Amy Ford, she's down in Texas. Um, and she wrote a fabulous book called Brown Babies, Pink Parents. And then there's the book Inside Transracial Adoption. That one is a little more textbook-ish. My book is, I would say, more conversational, but all of them have something to offer, transracial adoptive parents. Very, very good. Nice list. We'll put those all in the show notes so you don't have to frantically try to write them down if you're listening to this. <laughs> I talk fast, I know. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, well, that's all good stuff, and I'm sure uh, very uh, easy reads, and, and I I think there's a lot out there that uh, people can get their hands on that will either before or even after you've adopted transracially, and especially before, though. If you're considering... Hey, can we transracially adopt? Or maybe you've never even thought about it, but you're listening to this for the first time, going, "Man, maybe we could, maybe we could do that." Highly recommend getting some of these or reading some of these articles, blogs, books, especially Rachel's book and her blog, because you can get a lot of insight from um, adoptees, but also get insight from adoptive parents who've gone or already walked the road that you're considering walking. So. Highly recommend doing that. And please uh, be sure to check out Rachel's, Rachel's blog and her books. Everything's over at whitesugarbrownsugar.com. So thank you, Rachel, so much for you. In, you inspire us. We love talking to you. Your, your experience, your wisdom, your wonderful answers have helped us all understand transracial adoption better. Uh, and I'm so glad we were able to answer the questions directly from the folks on Facebook support groups. I highly recommend going over there. If you're not part of these groups, get in there and um, ask questions. There's so many people that are waiting to help you and support you on your journey. So thank you, Rachel. Anything else you want to add before we go? I would 
say, please utilize your local library. It is very, and as a writer, I know that sounds funny to say, buy, buy my book, but use, <laughs> you know, you can go to your library and get a lot of these books that I mentioned and things um, and order them from your local library system. I know that a lot of families who are waiting to adopt don't have a lot of spare money. And so I understand buying all these books can be expensive. So you know, go to your library system and order as much as you can. And um, there's borrowing systems or ask your agency to buy the books and then um, loan them out through their own personal library. So there's a lot of options besides just, you know, going out and buying $400 worth of books when you're trying to trying to adopt. So, but I appreciate you having me on the show, Tim. I always love talking to you. Oh, yeah. It's all my pleasure. Uh, it's it's enjoyable in that well, we're almost here an hour and it goes so fast talking to you. So thank you for coming back on. <laughs> And uh, we'll we'll take care. We'll talk to you again. Okay, sounds good. Thanks. Yep. Wow, what an incredible show today! Great questions and great answers from Rachel about transracial adoption. I uh, just love talking to her and uh, the people on the Facebook groups. You all did a great job of asking great, amazing questions. So hopefully, you got everything you wanted answered. If not, go back to that Facebook group. Those Facebook groups, and I'll put those links along with all the links, everything we talked about, all the books, and everything we talked about in the highlights of the show in at infantadoptionguide.com forward slash 37. That'll have everything there so you don't have to write anything down. And if you have any additional questions, something yet popped in your head while listening to this and you just didn't get the answer, you can leave a comment there or you can go into uh, one of these Facebook groups and Call me out specifically. Say, hey, Tim, Elder, hey, I didn't get my uh, question answered about transracial adoption. Here it is. And we'll be sure to reach back out to you and try to get the answer for you. All right. I also wanted just to remind you that if you could please leave a review for the show on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it. I'd love to hear from you. Just if whatever you want to hear about or maybe what you like already about the show, just go over to infantadoptionguide.com forward slash iTunes. And you can get there and leave a review for the show. Thank you so much for doing that. And until next time, may God bless you on your adoption journey. And my prayer is that you reach the dream of adding to your family through adoption. Thanks so much for listening. God bless you. Thanks for listening to my dad.